verses 1 through 25. Now Saul was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He went to the high priest and requested letters from him to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any men or women who belonged to the way, he might bring them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he traveled and was nearing Damascus, a light from heaven suddenly flashed around him. Falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul said. I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting, he replied. But get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the sound but seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. So they took him by the hand and led him into Damascus. He was unable to see for three days and did not eat or drink. There was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, here I am, Lord, he replied. Get up and go to the street called Straight, the Lord said to him, to the house of Judas and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, since he is praying there. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and placing his hands on him so that he may regain his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I've heard from many people about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem, and he has authority here from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for this man is my chosen instrument to take my name to Gentiles, kings, and Israelites. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Ananias went and entered the house. He placed his hands on him and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road you were traveling, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. At once, something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul was with the disciples in Damascus for some time. Immediately, he began proclaiming Jesus in the synagogues. He is the Son of God. All who heard him were astounded and said, Isn't this the man in Jerusalem who was causing havoc for those who called on this name and came here for the purpose of taking them as prisoners to the chief priests? But Saul grew stronger and kept confounding the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. After many days had passed, the Jews conspired to kill him. But Saul learned of their plot. So they were watching the gates day and night intending to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and lowered him in a large basket through an opening in the wall. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Sohi. Good morning, everyone. Happy New Year. As Eric mentioned, already we had our first elders meeting of the year, and I was telling our elders repeatedly, I was saying 2019 is going to be the best year ever. And they were kind of looking at me like, okay, that's a little cheesy, but I was saying, well, this is what I told myself at the beginning of 2019. If God exists, if Jesus has died and resurrected, if he's on the throne, if the Holy Spirit is active in our lives, then 
how can this not be the best year ever? So I just wanted to encourage you with that. We are in the book of Acts. We're picking up this series. We started it in the fall. Acts is a two-volume work by an author named Luke. Volume one is the Gospel of Luke, where he tells us the story of Jesus. And Acts is volume two, where we learn the story of early Christianity or the church. Why study the book of Acts? There are many reasons. But for my Christian friends here, in the West, in the United States, we're in an interesting time for the church. Uh, Some of the latest information that we're receiving is this. One, uh, more churches are closing than are opening in the United States, and that's kind of a first. In addition to that, People who are committed to church, who say, I'm, I'm a Christian, I, I believe in the church, are attending church far less frequently than they used to. So that church is one of many uh, commitments that they have in their lives. So Acts is important because it helps us with questions like, why did Jesus build the church anyway? Why do we need the church What should the church be? What should the church do? And we're looking at these questions as a church, as Trinity OC, and learning and listening to see what God would say to us in these questions. If you're here and you're not a Christian and you're skeptical about Christianity, Acts is also a great book for you to study because it addresses all kinds of questions you might have about Christianity, about the church, such as how did Christianity go from this small group of people They believe something that was kind of strange in their day and strange still in our day that this person, Jesus of Nazareth, he rose from the dead and he's he's reigning in heaven. How did this small group of people, only about 70, how did they grow to become a worldwide movement across cultures? People of all backgrounds become convinced of this. Why? Why did people then convert to Christianity and why would anyone now? That question is of particular relevance to the passage in the story we just heard read. This morning, we're looking at one of the most well-known stories in the book of Acts. It's about the conversion of Saul on the Damascus road. When you hear about the name Saul, this is the same person as Apostle Paul or St. Paul in the New Testament. So because of the same person, Saul is his Hebrew name. Paul is really just his Greek name. I'm going to be using them interchangeably back and forth this morning, just so we're clear on that. The section that we're in, Acts 8 through 10, this section is all about conversion. It has three conversion stories back to back to back. We looked at the first last week, a conversion of an African, an Ethiopian eunuch. In Acts 10 and 11, we read about the conversion of a Roman person named Cornelius, a soldier. Both this African eunuch and Cornelius, the Roman, they're what you might call seekers. They were looking for God. They were seeking him in the Old Testament scriptures. But Saul, who we just read about, is a Pharisee. He was a Jewish religious leader. He was the opposite of what we would call a seeker. He was a resistor to Christianity, and he thought he had nothing to seek. But this is the story of how his mind was changed. Now, conversion, when we use the conversion in the title of my message this morning is conversion. How 
God changes a life. That word conversion, for us in our modern world, we feel a little uncomfortable with it. We might feel like that's a dirty word in the modern world, conversion. We say, are you trying to convert me when people are trying to get us to win us over to their viewpoint? And we say, why are you trying to convert me? We don't convert anymore. It's wrong for anybody to try to convert someone to their religious point of view. That's what most people think in the modern world. And there's a lot that we could say about this, but something that stands out about this story that we just heard read that captures the Bible's teaching on conversion is this, and it actually falls into agreement with some of our objections to the idea of conversion, and it's this. Conversion isn't something people do to people. Conversion is something God does to people. In this story, that's so clear, right? No one tried to convert Paul. He was on the road. He was traveling. He didn't want to convert. He wasn't interested, and yet he did. His story is one of the most compelling evidences for Christianity. He was completely changed because of this experience, his conversion. I regularly read a magazine called Christianity Today. I think it's a great resource. Something they started doing at the end of all their issues is including something they call the testimony. It's just two pages, a story of somebody's faith journey, a story of their conversion. And they're... they're amazingly encouraging. They're amazing stories. The past year I've been reading them, and each one of them has blown me away. There's a story of somebody who converted at an EDM concert. I had to look up what EDM was. I had no idea. There's somebody who, who found Jesus while they were in prison serving a life sentence. There's a woman in Vietnam. She's actually the napalm girl pictured in the famous picture. She converted in a library in Vietnam uh, in at this desk filled with books of all the major religions. Her story is incredible. Uh, There's a story of a devout New Age feminist who was converted to Jesus through a dream she had. Now, as we read all these stories, and I know you haven't read them, but hearing about those, and these three stories in Acts, the African, the Roman, and here, the Pharisee, Paul, one thing we need to realize here, I want to say uh, up front as we're looking at this story, is there's no one template There's no one way that God meets a person and changes a life. It's so varied. It's so different. And so we want to be careful not to squeeze our lives or think that our stories have to fit into some kind of conversion mold. But having said that, later in 1 Timothy, when Paul is reflecting back on this experience, on his conversion, the way it happened, he says the way it happened occurred as an example And as an example for everyone, and the Greek word there is as a pattern for everyone. In what way is it a pattern? I think Paul, as he's reflecting on his own story, says, my conversion, my story actually contains the essential components of true conversion. A kind of blueprint, if you will, for how God changes a life. And that's how I want to look at it this morning. Realizing it's so unique how God draws us and changes us. But here in the story of the Apostle Paul, we have his story. We also have a pattern or a blueprint for how God changes us. And you might be thinking a lot about your life, things that need to change. It's the new year. You may have already 
carried with you into this room some resolutions. You may have already broken those resolutions. And so it's a good time for us to think, how does change happen? How does God change us? We're going to look at three parts to this blueprint. One, confrontation, a new view of God. Secondly, blindness, a new view of ourselves. And third, change, a new way of life. So let's look now at that first point, confrontation. For God to change a life, for there to be any true conversion or any real turning point in our lives, there must first be confrontation, a confrontation that results in a new view of God. We see this throughout Scripture. You think of the story of Jacob. He confronted God. He wrestled with God. He was a changed man after that. After that, he said, I didn't know God was like this. He had a whole new view of God. You think of Job, the story of Job. After many seasons of wrestling and prayer with God, at the end of Job, he says, I didn't even know who you were. I have a whole new view of you after that confrontation. You think of the story of Isaiah, how he was called into ministry. He had a vision of God where he said, I am undone. I am unclean. I had no idea you were so holy. God first confronted Isaiah, changed his life. It's the same here with Saul. Now, let's talk a little bit about Saul, make sure we know who he is, a little bit about his background. As I said already, we know him mainly as the Apostle Paul who wrote much of the New Testament. We are introduced to Saul earlier in the book of Acts. He becomes, in the early church, the archenemy of Christianity in chapters 1 through 8. At the end of those chapters, towards the end of chapter 7, we get the background story. He was standing by as Stephen, uh, one of the early evangelists, was preaching the gospel, was sharing the message of Jesus, and he was stoned. It says Paul was standing there, and people were laying their clothes at his feet. In chapter 8, verses 1 and following, it says he led the persecution in Jerusalem that led to a great scattering of Christians throughout Judea and Samaria. It was him who led the way. He made people leave their homes, their lives. They became refugees because of him. Then if you look at our text here in in chapter 9, look at verses 1 and 2, how Paul is described, breathing threats, breathing murder. That's, That's quite a picture. He's described almost like he's an animal. He's breathing He's so angry, he's so vicious in his vehemence against the Christian faith. As a Pharisee, Paul, he was a member of a religious order. He didn't have any legal or official power. So what he did here at the beginning of chapter 9 is he went to the high priest, who was really the most influential leader in Judaism of this time, and he said, can I have letters with your approval that would allow me to go hunt down Christians bring them back here, and imprison them. And the high priest signed that letter. Then we come to verse 3. How does God deal with such a man? Here we see his confrontation with God. It's as if God says, you want to be my enemy? You really want to confront me? Like God's saying, you want to go? Let's do this. Right here, 
on the road to Damascus. A light from heaven comes down. We learn later that this was the middle of the day, the brightest time of the day. A brighter light comes down. A voice happens. And Paul is on his back, on the floor, on the ground. Now the voice doesn't say, Booyah! Get on your back. You want to mess with me? Go home. God won, Paul zero. That's not what the voice says. The voice instead calls him by name, Saul. Saul, why? Why are you persecuting me? There's great power and there's great love. Those two always go together when God confronts a person. Paul, he says, his, his, his response to this voice is, who are you, Lord? Who are you, Lord? Now, this was the one question that Saul thought he would never ask of God. Who are you? He knew who God was. He knew all about God. He was an expert in the law. He had spent his entire life studying the Bible. He was the one who was telling other people, this is who God is. I know who God is. I obey him with every fiber of my being. I do everything he tells me to do, and I will tell you who God is. And here he finds himself falling to the ground, asking the most basic starting point question of faith. Who are you? If Saul were to ever change, if he were to ever truly meet God, he had to be first confronted with the reality that he didn't know who God was. He was wrong about God all this time, all his life. He had made up a God of his own. Application for us. What does this mean about conversion? Conversion requires meeting a God that we have not constructed in our own image. Any turning point in our lives, conversion the, the word can just be translated a turning point, a turning around. Any turning point, any turning about in our lives means being confronted with a God that we have not made up on our own. A scholar named N.T. Wright, he tells the story of when he was a college chaplain. All undergraduates in this college, they were forced to meet with him, whether they wanted to or not. They had to set up an appointment. And so he said in many of these appointments, the students would say, you won't be seeing much of me uh, chaplain right because I'm not a Christian. I don't believe in God. And he would always say, if somebody said that, he'd say, that's interesting. Which God is it that you don't believe in? Because I might not believe in that God either. You know, in talking to people, when people find out I'm a pastor, we, we end up talking about faith and spiritual things. I hear a lot of people say something like, well, my God would never dot, dot, dot. My God would never do that. My God would never say that. And the more you hear about what their God would and would not do, the more you hear about a God that would never confront that person on what they believe or how they live, but always already affirm that person in what they believe and how they live. It would be a God who is a lot like them. And we do this too. The problem with this is that's not a God. A God we have made can never confront us, can never convert us, so a God like this can never change us. 
confrontation, surprise, shock. These are signs of meeting the real God, of the real God at work. As one pastor said, a God who tells you things about himself that you don't want to hear and a God who tells you things about yourself that you don't want to hear. For the Christian, it means that this doesn't just happen once at one point in our conversion or in our stories, but this happens repeatedly throughout our lives, throughout the journey of faith. We're talking about reading the Scriptures together in our plan, CBR, Community Bible Reading. We should have, as we're reading through Scripture, many moments where we are confronted with a God who's telling us things we don't want to hear, where we have to sit back and go, who are you, Lord? Is this who you are? If we don't have that, we are avoiding confrontation with God, and we are filtering out the things that we don't want to hear, creating our own God who can't change us. Now, let me explain it like this. We know that confrontation is a sign of real relationship. This is how it works in our relationships, the same way with us and God. I don't like confrontation. I'm a non-confrontational person. But one thing I've learned in relationships is confrontation is necessary for any growth or any change in a relationship. So, illustration. If I'm talking to a couple, a married couple, and they say, we never fight. We've never even had any conflict always good with us, then I know if I hear that 99% sure something is very wrong in this relationship. Why? Because if there's no confrontation or conflict, that means most likely one person is getting squashed and ignored and is pushing their desires and needs aside for the other person. That's not a healthy relationship. That's not how you get to know one another. That's not how change happens. Healthy conflict is good for a relationship because it causes us to know the needs and the heart and the desires of another person. And so in our relationships, when we have those moments where we say, who are you? Those are good moments in a marriage or any friendship or relationship. The same applies even more so to God. Those are good moments when we have to step back and go, who are you? In the new year, if you are looking to change, if you're looking to grow a particular part of your life you want to change, no matter where you are spiritually, let me give you a place to start, to pray this. Who are you, Lord? And let God answer the question. Expect confrontation. Welcome confrontation. That's part one of how God changes a life. Confrontation. Secondly, blindness. He gives us a new view of ourselves. Verse 6, the voice said, get up, go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. So verses 8 and 9, Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes um, were open, he could see nothing. They took him by the hand. They led him into Damascus. He was unable to see for three days. He did not eat. Or drink. Here's a question that I was wrestling with this week. What happened in those three days? What was going on in those three days within Paul? Why did Jesus blind him? 
And then why did Jesus wait three days before he could regain his sight? There are some clues in the text as to what's going on. But there are also other places in Paul's writings where he reflects back on this experience and he tells us what was going on within. And there are two main things that were going on. Saul was coming to grips with this new view of God. His mind was completely blown. I thought I knew you, but I didn't know anything about you. And he was also coming to grips with what this new view of God meant about himself. The question, who am I? had to be answered like he was starting from the very beginning, like he was seeing himself for the first time in his life. These three days, what was he doing? Well, the text says, in these three days of blindness, verse 9, he didn't eat or drink. So Paul was fasting. Fasting throughout the Bible is a practice of humility of repentance, of earnestly seeking God. So Paul was earnestly seeking, he was thinking, he was humbled. And then in verse 11, there's a really interesting feature. If you have the um, English Standard Version, you'll see this in your Bibles. In the, in the CSB and our version printed, it says, since, as, as, um, as God is explaining to Ananias, hey, go to this guy Paul, he's like, I'm not going to do that. And then God tells Ananias, let me give you two reasons why it's okay. In the, in the CSB it says since, but in the ESV it says for behold. I think that's the better translation. Paul is saying, or God is saying to uh, Ananias, behold, let me, let me show you what's happening. You think Paul is this dangerous person, but he's not because he's praying. Now you look at that and go, why is that a big deal? Paul was a Pharisee. He probably prayed a lot, Right? But he never prayed like this. For the first time in his life, Saul was really praying in blindness, in darkness. It was as if God was saying, I don't want you to see anything else. I don't want you to think about anything else except me and you, who I am and who you are. I think Paul was reflecting on Jesus' response to his question. He said, who are you, Lord? And Jesus said to him, I am Jesus. Just those three words were enough to completely revolutionize everything for Paul. He's thinking, what does it all mean? This changes everything I've ever thought, I've ever known, this appearance of glory. And Jesus' response in that, all of Paul's theology, everything we read him write about in his letters, it's all there in seed form. He's just developing it out in his letters. Let me explain. How is that? Well, obviously, Jesus was alive and risen if he talked to him, right? So the resurrection of Jesus, it's true. If Jesus is risen, then here's what I think Paul was thinking. His death on the cross was not because of his sin. It couldn't be. It wasn't because he was rejected by God. It wasn't because he was cursed by God. Then why was he a crucified Messiah? He must have died for others if it wasn't for himself. The resurrection proves that God vindicated him. And so what took him to the cross was the sin, the rejection, and the curse 
that others deserved. And Paul said that changes everything. He said, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus. This is the deity of Jesus. If Jesus is Lord and God, then it was God on the cross who died. And Paul says, what? Could it be? Only a a perfect life, a perfect man, a God-man could save us. God substituting himself for us. For me, this changes everything. The resurrection of Jesus, the deity of Jesus. And then he learned about, in that one statement, the unity of Jesus with his people. We call it union with Christ. Jesus said, in persecuting those who believe in me, you're persecuting me. I am that united to my people. If Jesus is united with his people, his identity is theirs. This means to be united to him, the Messiah who died and rose again, is for me to die and rise again. It's what he has done, not what I do. This changes everything. In his later reflection on this conversion experience, Paul says two things I will never forget. They completely changed my life. They changed my life to this day, and I realize them there in that conversion experience. Two things about myself. One, I am a far, far greater sinner than I ever thought. The classic pictures that have been painted throughout the ages of Paul on the, in this moment, some of you have that picture in your mind. They all have them. Oh, there's one. They all have them on a horse, right? But there's no horse mentioned here. There's no horse mentioned when Paul tells this story ever or when Acts recounts this story. Let's keep going. There, there's an, a Greek icon. Uh, there's another picture. Paul is being blasted uh, by the light. And then the last one is my favorite, the Caravaggio. Paul's on the ground, hands up, flat on his back. I think the artists are picking up on something by placing Paul on a horse because he was knocked off his high horse in this moment. In Galatians 1, when he talks about his story, he says, I thought I was better than everyone. I was advancing beyond my contemporaries. I was the rising religious star. In Philippians 3, he says, I was so confident of myself. I would put my spiritual resume up against anyone's, and I knew it would win. And so the only way Paul could see himself as he really was was to be plunged into darkness and blindness. Here's how Jesus said it in John chapter 9. He said, this is how the Pharisees need to be blinded, those who don't see their sin. John 9, 39 through 41. For judgment I have come into this world, Jesus said, so the blind will see... And those who see will become blind. Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, What? Are we blind too? Jesus said, If you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim to see, your guilt remains. Only those who admit they are blind can ever really see who they are. This is what Jesus was doing with Paul to help him see, as he would admit later on, 
that I am just as guilty as the most irreligious person in the world. More so. My religiosity, my goodness were the things that kept me from God. To be a Christian is not only to repent of our sin, but to repent of our goodness that we trust in instead of Jesus. In 1 Timothy, Paul's again reflecting back on this day, and he says, on that day, I learned something that I hold on to. He calls it a trustworthy saying. And the saying is this, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I am the worst of them. Friends, if we can't say this, if we've never felt this about our sin and about our goodness, we probably never have experienced conversion. If we don't experience this regularly, we won't be experiencing turning points of growth in our relationship with God. And so we cry out, help me see. But that's only one part of what Paul saw about himself. There's something else. It's even more important than this. He realized I'm a far, far greater sinner than I ever thought, but he also realized at the same time that I am loved by God, despite my sin in a way I never thought possible. Paul said, I was persecuting God. God himself, I was hurting him. Jesus said, you're persecuting me. The God of the universe, I was fighting him. I had no intention of stopping or changing. I was going to keep going, but he stopped me. He slammed me to the ground to get my attention, to speak to me, to call me by name, to change my life. Why would he do that? In Galatians, Paul says, I realized he was calling me even from my mother's womb. He loved me then. In 1 Timothy, he says, I realized it was grace that overflowed on me. It was mercy. It was patience that I never thought possible. Saul, the Pharisee, thought when the Messiah came, here's what would happen. He's going to come. He's going to look at all the people. He's going to look at all the Pharisees. He's going to point to me and say, Saul, you're my first pick. You're on my team. But instead, the Messiah came and said, Saul, you are my number one enemy. And I love you. And I want you. That radically changed his life. And that is how God changes a life. When we see, despite our sin and brokenness, the radical, unimaginable love of God for us in Christ. In the new year, if we're looking to change and grow, can I give you another prayer? To say, show me, God, what I don't see about myself. What am I blind to? How am I blind to the fact that I am a sinner in great need? And how am I blind to the fact that you know me and you love me? Confrontation, blindness, finally, change. A new view of God, a new view of ourselves, and a new way of life. When we experience true conversion, turning points in our faith, our view of God changes, our view of ourself changes, and then our life changes. This is a sequence in the logic of growth and change in the Bible. We see who God is, we see what He's done, we see who we are because of it, and then 
Our lives change from there. We embrace a new way of life. If you look back at verse 2 in chapter 9, Uh, We're given the first ever name uh, for the Christian movement. It's what Christians called themselves. It's what the church called itself. And that is the way. Look at verse 2. It says, If Saul found any men or women who belonged to the way, then he had permission to arrest them. That's an interesting term for our faith. Uh, The way. Christianity is a set of beliefs, but it is much more. It's a way of life. It's a road. It's a journey of following Jesus, not a one-time decision. Charles Spurgeon, I have the quote for you. It's in your bulletin. He said, conversion is a turning onto the right road, and the next thing to do is to walk on it. I just want to show you two things here that changed in Paul's life. The new way of life that he embraced that are a part, that are an element, that are uh, pieces of what God changes in us when He changes our lives. First is a new life in community. He embraced a new way of life in community. Now back to my opening comments on the value of Acts for Christians. Why do we need the church? What good is the church? My friends, my Christian friends, conversion is not a solo or an individual matter. Conversion is to Jesus and to the church. Jesus is so bound up and united with his people. He says to persecute the church is to persecute him. Conversion is not complete. Spiritual turning points cannot be sustained and become true life change apart from the body of Christ, the church. How do we see that in Saul's story? Well, prior to his conversion... We don't know a lot about what Paul was doing, but we see him with other people. But the sense is, what we do know is that he thought he was better than them, that he didn't need them. He says, I was an arrogant man, but that all changed starting on this day. Because God called this other Christian, this man named Ananias, to show Paul this new way of life is a way of life in community. It's a way of life where we learn to depend On others. Did you see what Paul heard from Ananias, what Ananias did? He laid his hand on him, he touched him. This man whom he was afraid of, who could have taken him to prison, he said to him, Brother Saul. And the scales fell off and he could see. God didn't have to do this through another person, God could have done it directly himself, but he chose to do it through another person. Ordinary Christian to teach Paul. It's not without the touch, the welcome, the presence of another ordinary Christian that he can embrace and live in this way of life. It's a new life in community. The second thing that changed for Saul is he embraced a new life of surrender. If you look at verses 20 through 25, we won't be able to look at them closely, but we see what happened in Paul's life. He goes from persecuting Jesus to proclaiming Jesus. He goes from making others suffer to suffering for others. Verse 15 gives us the language to describe this change. God says about Saul, he says, this man, this man is my chosen instrument. The old King James 
translates it this way, this man is my chosen vessel. My chosen vessel. This is the same word Paul will use to describe himself later in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. To describe his way of life. He says, this is my way of life. I live as a vessel. It's a life of surrender. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Just want to have some closing thoughts on this text. Let's put it up there on the slide. God said, do you see the, um, the echoes of this, this day in this text? God said, let light shine out of darkness. He made His light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. Paul is saying, when I saw the face of Christ, when I saw the face of the one who suffered and surrendered for me, my whole way of life changed. I realized my life is not to display my glory, my achievements, my goodness. My life is not to display what I think others want to see about me, what others will like in me. My life is now surrendered to display the glory of Jesus. I'm just a vessel. A vessel? Have you ever wondered why when it comes to archaeology and the things that they're able to find in the ancient world, it's always pottery? You're like, didn't anybody have anything besides pottery? But they had a lot of pottery because they put their food in there. They put their water in there. It was ordinary. It was common. A vessel is just some ordinary thing. A vessel is very fragile, easily breakable. And a vessel is replaceable. You can always get a new one. It's expendable. Paul said, I'm okay with that. I wonder how much the example of Ananias showed Paul this way of surrender. When God said to Ananias, go to Paul, he said, wait, I know who Saul is. I know who this person is. He's going to come and he's going to arrest us and he's going to take us back to Jerusalem. Why would you, God, tell me to go get arrested? And God says to him, go. And Ananias says, okay, Lord, I trust you. Some of us are there today. We say, I don't understand why, Lord. Why are you calling me to this? But okay, I will. I will surrender. Because looking at the face of Christ, I know I can trust you. I can be your vessel. Some of us identify with Saul. God is calling us to something that involves cost, suffering, giving of ourselves. And only if we look to the face of Christ, the one who surrendered and suffered for us, can we say, okay, Lord, I'm your vessel. So here at the beginning of 2019, can I ask you to consider your way of life Are you trying to change alone? Are you not bringing your real self into community, into the church? You need the body of Christ to change. And are you willing to be a vessel, ordinary, fragile, expendable, for a purpose that's greater than yourself? My friends, let's look at who He is. And in the face of Christ, we see the glory of God and we see ourselves as broken, 
and yet dearly loved. May God grant us that we may gaze on that face, friends, this year, moment by moment, day by day, all year long, and may He change us. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank You for for this story. And I pray for myself, I pray for all of us, I pray for this church. That as we seek any bit of change in our lives, as we long to be different, as we long to grow, as we long to see our relationships improve, as we long to have a life of meaning and purpose, I pray that you would do this work in our lives, that you would bring turning points where we are confronted with who you are, where you show us who we are, and that you transform us, give us the grace as we gaze into your face, Jesus, to help us walk, to help us walk by faith, trusting that if you are who you are, then you will sustain us, you will empower us, and you will enable us to be vessels of your great glory. I ask it, I pray for it, we plead for it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Friends, would you